Sales mistakes account executives should avoid from 28 years of experience. Welcome to the Work Before the Work podcast for account executives, SDRs, and sales professionals looking to prospect better, sell more, and get promoted faster. I'm Paul M. Caffrey, co-author of the Work Before the Work, and in each episode, we deconstruct the hidden habits elite sales professionals use to outperform the competition. Please share and enjoy. Hello and welcome along to the Work Before the Work podcast. I'm Paul M. Caffrey. This is episode two and today we've got a great guest lined up for you. We've got Kevin KG Gaither. Kevin has 28 years of tech sales experience. He has worked for eight startups, three of which have went on to have significant liquidity events. And in his time, Kevin has built many, many successful sales teams from account executive teams, SDR teams, all the way up to enterprise sales teams. And in the episode, we're going to discuss uh, Kevin's great new book called It Happened on the Sales Floor, where that 28 years of experience has been broken down into lessons and anecdotes that you can take away and use to improve your performance as an account executive. He delivers it in a very charismatic and a very comedic way, and I'm sure you'll pick that up from the show that we have uh, coming up for you in a moment. Importantly, this sets you up to maybe not make some of the mistakes which Kevin and his team have made uh, before and allow you to be successful like Kevin and all of his account executives a little bit faster. Some key talking points in the in the episode also center around what it takes for you to look to get promoted. So for example, we talk about the top six characteristics account executives should have, or more importantly, that sales leaders are looking for when they're hiring. We also speak about coachability and the importance of being able to show how fast and how speedy uh, you are when it comes to coaching and applying the lessons that have been shared with you. And then it's packed full of tactical tips around how to you know, actually forecast a little bit better, a little bit more accurately. Speaking about, for example, how to have a tactical uh, mutual close dates and signature dates, and how to have those conversations with your customers uh, and so that then there is clear transparency for you about what's going to happen when. One more thing. Are you looking to build 5X pipeline? What would 5X Pipeline do for you as an account executive? Probably means you're going to have a really great quarter. Probably means you'd have a great year. Would probably set you up to go and get promoted as well. If that's something that you would like to actually get some help with, go to paulcaffrey.com forward slash brainstorming and let's have a one-on-one -on -one call to build out a plan specific for you so that you can actually build that 5X Pipeline and go on to have a great year despite all the challenges and all the tribulations that are coming our way with everything that's going on at the moment in the tech sales world. That sounds like something that you'd like to find out a bit more about? Go check out the link. Now, let's get started. I'm delighted to be joined by Kevin KG Gaither. Kevin, thanks so much for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. Love to help. So as I've mentioned, uh, Kevin has 28 years experience in the tech industry, has been worked for eight startups, has had multiple liquidity opportunities you know, come to fruition. And today is going to be a great opportunity for us to um, dig a little bit into what well what's called it happened on the sales floor which is kevin's great new book full of lessons full of anecdotes and really tangible information that will maybe prevent you from making some of the mistakes that kevin has made so one thing that jumped out at me kevin when when i was listening uh to the book 
was you mentioned that in 2008 that you changed a successful sales methodology in response to the global crisis. And that's when I cut my teeth in sales. And I remember that time. Uh, it was bittersweet. I just thought this is a really, really difficult profession. But probably one of the best things for me starting off in that period was I knew no better. Yeah. So my question to you is, we're obviously going through a few challenges at the moment. Um, what changes do you recommend people should be doing today? <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't like me to be a jerk, Paul, but like right out of the gate, but like, what changes shouldn't you be considering is really, you know, as a, as a sales leader, um, and, and, you know, look, I, I'm going to be really blunt with your audience here, and some of them are going to be turned off about how accusatory I am, because, you know, here's the deal. If you've been, if you, if your entire leadership experience has been from 2009 until now, you've been in the frothiest economy in like the last like 500 years or something like that. So it hasn't been that difficult. And that's actually one of the main reasons why I wrote the book. It happened on the sales floor because I wanted to send a signal to readers that, um, I've been there and done that. <laughs> I've been through the dot-com bubble bursting. I've been through the mortgage crisis, the more global meltdown there, and now and led sales teams through, uh, you know, 550 salesperson team through um, through COVID, okay? Um, you know, I I've been there and done that. And unfortunately, those battle scars are hard at the time. And as a sales leader, you have to evaluate, actually, let me state this differently. I had to evaluate everything. It starts with your training, okay? Starts with your training. Do you, when you bring on new salespeople in this new economy, do you train them the same way that you trained them 12 months ago? Don't be an idiot, okay? You need to reevaluate that and train differently, okay? Yeah. When, when you're hiring your salespeople, are you going to hire the same way that you hired 12 and 24 months ago? Because the salesperson that's going to do well now in a really difficult environment is, is, is going to be totally different than the person that was doing well 12 months ago when money was cheap and, and purchase orders just like flew through like it was you know going out of style, okay? Um, your sales methodology and your sales process. And this is one of the major things that I changed back in when the great recession hit and it happened so fast so fast it was crazy like within six months everything changed and i realized that what we were doing we had to do differently and one of the main things i changed was the sales methodology and i changed and i read a bunch of books of course at the time and i went to my library and i went ah high probability selling that's what we need and the central premise behind high probability selling is that we only want to work with customers that can afford our product, want our product, need our product. By the way, Paul, Paul yeah. want and need are two separate things. Okay. Absolutely. Can afford our product, want our product, need our product, and want our product in a relatively short period of time. And I don't want to be messing around, Paul, with anybody else. Okay. In, in a, you know, pre-Ukrainian war environment, you could keep stuff in your pipeline and cross your fingers and smoke a little hopium and maybe it'll come in. Maybe that deal will come in. 
your product is okay and they kind of need the product because money was cheap and there was money to be spent. Now we need to be, and this is how I'm advising my founders, we need to be laser focused on our high probability accounts, our high probability prospects, our high probability upsell accounts, our high probability new accounts, get laser focused. And I don't care what methodology you're using for opportunity health, whether it's medic or something else, I don't care. You need to be kicking opportunities out. These customers today need to earn the right to be in your pipeline. Paul, customers today need to earn the right to be in your pipeline. And that's so, a different mentality that sales leaders and sales, um, sales, sales uh, people haven't had over the last seven years. It's sort of like, ah, fill the pipeline and stuff will close. No. Yeah, it's, it, it's definitely very different. What are indications, if, if we look at it from, let's take that, that founder who's got this big pipeline that they've been looking after for the last number of years. They've been meeting a lot of people, very busy, and maybe things are starting to slow down because it is a bit more challenging out there. How do we recommend a founder or a salesperson selling in that, in that position to know if that customer has earned the right to be in their pipeline? What can they look for? I'm a huge fan of the medic framework. It's easy to understand. M-E-D-D-I-C. It's, re it's re really easy to understand. Any of your users can, you can go look it up. It's like, just Google it. No big deal. <clears throat> but at the, at the most simple, like if I'm just going to give you the Occam's razor, the simple thing, is there a real pain that you are solving? <laughs> are you talking to the person and the people that can say yes? And of course, today there's going to be more buyers involved. Okay. So am I, do I have access to all of the people involved in this decision? Um, and are they on the same page as me with respect to that timeline? I used to, in forecast calls, my sales people used to laugh because I would say the same exact thing. The close date. Oh, you got a close date of July 31st on this opportunity, Paul. Is that your date or is it their date? Have you discussed specifically with them that July 31st is the date that they are signing the contract. And let me just tell you, Paul, if you just do those three things, okay, is there a real pain, like a real pain that we've diagnosed that, that we're solving? We have access to the group of people, including the CFO nowadays. The CFO is involved in everything now because money is tight. Um, and number three, we have a clear mutual expectations about the close date. If you just do those three things, you will take plenty of deals and move, move them, you know, from forecasted to not forecastable. And that's a good thing. And that's a yep. good thing because it gives your salesperson and your sales manager that's coaching them something very specific to, you know, to look at. And by the way, we're talking founders. They yes. don't know, they, they don't know shit. <laughs> like, and it's okay. I'm sorry for swearing. Sorry for swearing. No, no. They, they, they don't know what they're doing. That's why you and I exist. And that is okay. So if, if founders don't have, they don't have the time, Paul, as you know, to like come up with complicated methodology. They got 10 billion things going on in their head. So give them their three simple things that you can do to evaluate the healthier pipeline and be like discriminatory, kick stuff out. This is not in our pipeline. Go back and, and get this out of here because we're not going to forecast this deal. Yeah. 
No, I really, really like that, Kevin. It's really clear. Uh, and again, you know, if it's not mutual, if you're not solving a problem, or if they don't think that your solution is the root cause of that problem, again, another way of looking at things, you're not going to be at the races. Now, one thing that you mentioned in your book, which I thought was quite interesting, and I'd love for you to expand upon it was, um, well, don't be democratic with your leads. So I, I think not enough people will be familiar with this. So tell me more. This one is super contradictory. <laughs> um, and, and, and it, uh, I'm just going to be out with it. Okay. Uh, not contradictory. It's like inflammatory. A lot of people yeah. get angry when I, when I talk about this. Okay. Founders and sales leaders need to understand that leads are valuable assets. They're valuable assets that the team has at their disposal. Leads and accounts, by the way. This is, this is, yep. it's, it's the same thing. Leads, new leads coming in or current accounts that our account managers might work. Okay. These are all <clears throat> assets at our disposal. And we have a responsibility to the company to make sure that those leads and accounts are being handled by the right people, okay? Now, Paul, we didn't rehearse this in advance. I want you to fill in the bank blank here, okay? It's gonna be an easy one for you that you'll pass, guaranteed. Oh, there we go, no pressure. We always want the best leads to go to... Our best reps. Our best reps, okay? And, and I'm telling you, Paul, that not one single person that I ever asked that to that has any level of experience, even salespeople will say, yeah, the best leads and the best accounts need to go to the best salespeople, okay? Well, this is where we put our money where our mouth is. So leads are not to be distributed equally, okay? I want to make sure that I'm scoring my leads so I know, or my accounts, again, leads are accounts, yeah. scoring these accounts and leads and identifying which ones are the most valuable. And this could be very simple. ABC. You can use a qualitative method or you can use a very quantitative method, which is what I have done in the past with um, priority accounts, named accounts, inbound yep. leads and, and existing accounts and things like that. And then you strike your sales team. <sighs> Best salespeople, A salespeople, B salespeople, C salespeople. So now think about this in your mind's eye on your left column, you've got a accounts, B accounts, and C accounts. And on the, on the other column, you've got A sales reps, B sales reps, and C sales reps. Make sure, of course, you have an objective measurement of what A, B, and C looks like. If you've got subjectivity and favoritism built in there, I'm going to box your ears. That's a problem. Okay. So make sure you've got this objective measurement on both sides. Yep. And then you literally match up a grade accounts to A grade salespeople, B grade accounts with B grade salespeople and C grade accounts to C grade salespeople or leads, you know, whatever. Okay. And that is the way to do it. And of course, why? <laughs> why? Because we agree on the central premise. The best leads need to go to the best salespeople. And there's this interesting inverted pyramid, by the way, that occurs. You, okay. There's not an equal distribution of the best leads, Paul. Okay. So if you look at a hundred accounts, you don't have 33 A's, 33, you know, B's and 34 C's. It doesn't work that way. You've got yeah. like 10 A's and you've got 30 B's and then you've got 60 of the C's. And just like your salespeople, you only have an elite few too. So you match up. So you have fewer, fewer of the great leads and accounts, Paul, 
that go to your best salespeople. And then there's a larger amount of the B's and that goes yeah. to the larger bucket of your salespeople. And then the C grade leads goes to your lower performing or your newer, newer salespeople. And that, and, there, and again, just to put a finer point on it, my passionate topic, why are we doing this? Because it's the responsible thing to do for the business, for the benefit of the company. The best accounts yeah. and the best leads should be in the hands of the best salespeople. It is not a democracy. Yeah. Absolutely. And that makes total sense. Look, it's the way you speak about it. Most people will be familiar with tiering a territory or tiering accounts. So as you've spoke that through, actually, I'm sure people are going, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Let me see how I can make that happen and removing subjectivity. Absolutely. What, what I'm seeing now is, um, particularly with, with founders, they're, they're somewhat, they're, they're halfway through their financial year. Most, let's face it, most are following that, that tech FY, not everybody. And, you know, founders, startups, and even sales leaders, they're starting to think about next year, my next FY. You know, what do I need to be successful then? The bones are being put together for those plans. What advice would you give founders who are in the midst of starting to think about that and starting to plan for the next year coming? Um. <laughs> I disagree with you, actually. I'm sorry, oh, Paul. Um, Six months. My experience with founders at, you know, A, A round, B round, early stage, it's June, July, August. They're not thinking about 2023. So, in fact, I'm, my advice is July and August, we must start thinking about 2024, excuse me, 2024 yep. and, and, and planning there. So there's a lot of people that are probably listening to this and they're nodding their heads like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're not, they're not going to do it. My clients are the same. I could bring the horse to water, but I can't make them drink. And I'm like, why is it that we are now past Thanksgiving? And now we're trying, you know, in the States, Thanksgiving is end of yep. November, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, what, why are, why is it the end of November, beginning of December? And now we're really starting to like go hot and heavy. Like, no, please start this in August. Now to your question, this is where I think the future of sales leadership exists in the mathematics. And if you don't know how to make your way around an Excel spreadsheet or a Google sheet and know how to, you know, do formulas and, and do your own calculations, you're really just going to get left in the dust. Okay. So what we need to be doing is setting good and reasonable goals for ourselves. Those goals can come from the board. We can make those goals up ourselves. In fact, it'd be good to do both like the high level goals and go, okay. And this is, this is the answer to your question. Okay. What conditions need to exist for us to be able to hit those numbers? And when you ask it that way, instead of getting the board, which usually happens this way, you take some VC money and the board expects high results. Mm, shocking. Yeah. Shocking. And then you get this number from the board that they expect and you're like, oh my God, we'll never hit that number. You're going to fail as a founder. You're going to fail as a sales leader. If you can't turn that and say, what conditions need to exist for us to get there, to get to that number? And when you ask it that way, Paul, you can then start opening up ideas of different channels, 
different ways of generating pipeline. <clears throat> I mean, look, your, your number's going to go up 60% year over year. God, that sounds like a lot. Right. But what if you knew that your marketing budget was doubling or tripling? Yes. Would that, would that make a difference? What if you knew a new, new CMO was going to come on board that had a track record of making it ra really rain leads at the previous company and you could make that happen? You can architect that. Like that, that is, that is, um, so that's the first thing. Any, you want to unpack anything else? Cause I got more to say. Um, yeah, I, I, yes, I guess the, what we're kind of, what I'm kind of seeing is, you know, this year, a lot of, um, you know, founders and businesses, they've maybe adjusted down what they were going to do. So at the start of the year, they had this big number. Now it's, of course. it's a little bit less and they're starting to wonder, well, do I go back to what I was going for last year? Do I try say next year is going to be a, a real double year? Do I be conservative and just go, I'll do the same and see if they'll accept yeah. that? You yeah. Know, these are the sorts of things swilling around founders' minds at the moment. No, no, of course, of course. Look, <clears throat> there's some there's some days where I'm just, how in the world have I spent an entire career in sales and sales leadership? I am one frugal individual, okay? And that has actually benefited me tremendously. Why? Because I actually think about the cost of the business. A lot of salespeople yeah. just say, sales leaders, revenue cures all. That's, by the way, that's a benefits thing. And it, don't do that. Like, that's a failure. Like, just go watch what they did and don't do that. Okay. So the answer to your question, Paul, is that what you do next is also cash dependent. It's also cash dependent. <clears throat> I'm literally working with uh, one of my founders, one of my favorite companies, and they're growing. They're not growing as fast as they were two years ago. Okay, they're they're growing. Um, their MRR is, is is growing, but not as fast. And they've got eighteen months of cash left, and they're not so clear on whether or not we're going to be in a very good fundraising environment in twelve to eighteen months. And so the answer, the other answer to your question is like, do I do the same things I did last year or beginning of the year or whatever? It's also cash dependent. You also then have to go, okay, am I going to be able to get a debt facility down the line to, to yeah. pay for some of that marketing? Am I going to be able to raise money somewhere down the line? Um, you know, maybe it's, maybe it is a down round, but, but I'll be able to raise money with the company. There's there, that, that, that's sort of a, you know, it's almost bottoms up because you're like, yeah. what pile of cash do I have to be able to do these things? But you, but we have, and this is precisely why we need to start doing this now. And, and let me hammer on one particular point. If you have a product that has a sales cycle of four months or longer, you had better start opening requisitions for salespeople now for the goals you have for next year. Yep. Because if you think you're going to grow your revenue, with the existing salespeople, well, then you'd better figure out how you're going to get higher ACVs and higher conversion rates. And that's, if you can do that, that's great too. But if your, if your big goals next year depend on hiring more enterprise salespeople, you'd better get them in the door sooner rather than later, because you've got to hire them. And that's going to, that's going to take six weeks to a quarter potentially to find Absolutely. something. Yeah. Then it's going to take five, six months for them to get fully ramped. And by the time you do that, we're 10 months in, you know, from now, like it's July. 
It's it's 10 months into 2024. If you're going into 2024 and you're stamping your plan that has all these fully ramped enterprise heads, you're like, better have a good October then. Like you better have an amazing October because you have to hire these people and then ramp them up, which is going to take five, six, seven months. So that that's that is why I tell founders, you better start planning now. You better start planning now because part of that is hiring heads. Usually, usually it's hiring heads to, to meet your growth plans in sales and rev ops and marketing. And if you're not getting that engine going, if you, like, you're just getting started in January because you're like, oh, I finally figured out what our plan is and the board's approved it. You're already 10 months behind. Yeah, absolutely. Look, could not agree more with you on that. And the one thing then that comes along, and I think this is going to be true for most, no matter what, is we're probably going to need more salespeople. We're probably going to be you know, looking for whether it's single digit hires or maybe it's five or 10 or whatever, it's probably more. And look, let's face it, there's a lot of salespeople who have maybe had a layoff, who have you know, taken well-deserved time out because they've put themselves in a, in a position to be able to do that. And they're starting to think about getting back in. And one of the things that you mentioned in the book I thought was quite interesting was, you know, understand the difference between sales athletes uh, and sales competitors. Uh, I was wondering if we dig into that a little bit deeper. Yeah. Uh, once again, I'm going to have an ultimate, like a real passionate response to this because I've made these mistakes. The whole, mm. the whole book, remember, I just want to point out, I wrote the entire book because number one, I was really tired of reading the BS on LinkedIn about from sales leaders that just have never done it multiple times before. Okay. Um, and number two, I wanted to share my screw ups. I wanted to, you know, make, you know, people avoid these mistakes that I've made over the last, you know, 28 years. I've made a ton. And as a result of making all these mistakes, I've made a lot of money. I've had a lot of success because I've learned from these mistakes. And the one mistake that you're bringing up here is confusing competitive people with sales athletes. There's this big myth out there that I want to hire, you know, salespeople must be competitive. So therefore, I'm going to hire people that played competitive sports, sales athletes. And so you've got these uh, myopic, I'm trying not to use more foul language, Paul, you've got these myopic, narrow-minded sales leaders, usually inexperienced, only looking for people that have played competitive sports. They look on the resume and it says that they've, you know, played lacrosse or baseball or, yeah. you know, football, soccer, whatever. Um, and, and then they make that assumption. They make the leap. Oh, they played competitive sports. Therefore, they must be competitive. And I've learned the hard way that it's not true. The short story is I did the same thing. I looked at a resume when I was an inexperienced sales leader, ramping up my sales team. And I look at this guy and he's played division one water polo at UC Berkeley. My God, he must be competitive. Come on in. And I, I hired him with only that. You know why? Well, you've got to be competitive to do well in sales. So therefore he must be competitive because he played water yep. polo at a high level. Paul, this guy couldn't close his way out of a paper bag. He was one of the worst salespeople that I've ever met in my entire life. And it turned out that his parents had pushed him his entire life to play water polo. 
He didn't want to do it. He didn't care. So they just pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. And then he got a scholarship to play Division One water polo because he was talented, but he didn't care. And so left to his own devices in the real world, the working world with his parents not all over him, he just withered away. He couldn't care less about winning customers over or competing with people on his team or competing with himself even and setting high goals for himself. By contrast, <clears throat> and this is a secret sauce, some of the most competitive people that I have hired have never played competitive sports in their entire lives. One of my favorite hires was this woman who, when I asked her, tell me about the last time you were competitive. It's one of my favorite questions. Tell me about the last time you were competitive. And she goes, what do you mean? You mean work or personal? By the way, that's a wonderful question because in their mind, they're always competitive, work or personal, which one do you want? Okay, so that's a great sign. Right. Yeah. And I go, it doesn't matter to me, just the last time. And she goes, well, I don't know if this counts, but I am a front of the class yoga person, front of the class yoga person. And I like to sit there and do the poses, the real hard poses, but then I've got my eyes closed and I, then I open my eye and I look to the left and I look to the right and I see who's fallen down. And when they fall down, I think to myself, I win. Oh my God. I, like she's one of the best salespeople I've ever, I've ever hired there. Never played a competitive sport in her entire life. So there's a big difference between really being competitive in sales and a sales athlete. Yeah. And I, and furthermore, let's just, you know, call it out. You're going to be hiring more males if you just are doing the sales athlete thing. And, and that's just not very open-minded because sit, I've had a boatload of women that are amazing salespeople, many of them. Um, and, and I, I would, I would bias actually towards hiring women as salespeople rather than men, especially, you know, the ones that have played competitive sports and have experience in sales. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, yeah, like diversity is, is, um, your team needs that, you know, no question of a full stop there. So I guess one thing then that's a really nice question to understand. Okay. If they're competitive, but let's say, um, how do you tell that the, the rep is going to be, you know, still competitive or still hungry when they join your organization? Let's say there's a halo effect. They've done something amazing. Maybe they're at one of the top SaaS sellers before or somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. How do you understand if you go for experience or inexperience or, you know, what can you, how can you tell if someone's going to be hungry or, or, you know, actually work in the role? Yeah. So, um, I have a deep, deep passion for hiring. Why? Because hiring is the tip of the spear. You can have a great product. You can have great training. You can have a great culture, great compensation. But if you put the wrong butts in the seats, <laughs> it's like, it's all for naught. Okay. And, and, yeah. and furthermore, you know, ultimately I'm kind of lazy and the better I can hire the better salespeople, the easier my job becomes because they're just, they're, you just, wind them up and away they go. Like they, they don't need anybody to like motivate them and, and any of that kind of stuff. Okay. So here's, here's your tagline. This is the one that the, that the founders need to, you know, tattoo inside their left arm here. Okay. Past performance guarantees future results. Past performance guarantees future results. Now, if you're buying stocks in the stock market, that doesn't work. <laughs> that's, that's not okay. But with people, with people, Past performance guarantees future results. And so I want to look for 
And you bring up a really great point. Maybe they maybe they were a one trick pony. Maybe maybe they had one great quarter that like blew their number away for the entire year. How do I know that they truly are going to be high performers on my team? Like a private investigator or a detective during the interview process, I need to see multiple signals. I need to see multiple pieces of information. Tell me about the last time you were competitive. Okay, great. They tell you a story. It better be detailed. It better be recent. And when they answer that question, you know what the easy question I asked thereafter, Paul? Tell me about another time. Tell me when the another time was, okay? Um, tell me about the most competitive situation you ever faced at work. Um, two years ago, uh, I want to see recency. People that are competitive today were competitive yesterday, were competitive last week, were competitive 10 days ago. So you want to be looking for and that's why uh, behavioral interview questions are yeah. so easy to structure and so great to ask because it forces the candidate to tell real stories about those situations instead of, are you a hard worker? Do you consider yourself a hard worker? Who the hell isn't going to answer that and go, I'm a really hard worker. Great. If you want to do this really fun, by the way, and I do find interviewing fun because it's like unraveling a mystery. Yep. Do you can, Paul, do you, do you consider yourself to be a hard worker? You're going to say yes. If you say no, by the way, the interview's over, but like, you know, but you oh, say yes. That's right. So Paul, do you consider yourself to be a hard worker? You say Yes. My very next knee-jerk response is, tell me about the most recent time where you felt like you just worked your butt off. When was that? Tell me the situation. Tell me the details. How often do you have to work that hard all, all the time? Oh, have, you, have to be, you have to be a hard worker. Great. Well, then tell me about the next time. So, I'm, so my point to you, Paul, is yeah. I'm looking for multiple yeah. recent stories, real stories, when your salespeople demonstrated those particular characteristics. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really like that and totally exemplifies what you're talking about uh, from what have people been doing the last six months. Uh, it'll be there. So what I'm kind of, so we're hearing, we're going to have sales reps who are looking to move and they're going, okay, I need to have some competitive stories. I need to understand and be able to articulate myself, uh, you know, in, in a short space of time. Founders going, okay, I need to ask those questions. Um, look, I too, I really like the hiring side of things. So, you know, what other traits, experience or skills, just maybe one or two, do you think absolutely look for this in your salesperson for selling in 2024? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I get that question a lot from founders. Um, and it actually starts with the more broad question of like, you know, what do you look for in top salespeople? And I, and because I get that question so often, I've actually come up with there's, there's six things. There's six okay. things that I always look for. Now, your mileage might vary. You might disagree. This isn't Moses coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. Okay, like you can change yeah. it on your own. This is just my experience uh, uh, in hiring salespeople over the last, you know, 28 years. Need for achievement, competitiveness, optimism coachability, continual learning, and organizational skills. Need for achievement, competitiveness, optimism, continual learning, uh, coachability, and organizational skills. 
those six characteristics, if I could just pick six, which I recommend that clients have anywhere between eight and 12 characteristics that they're, you know, must have characteristics that they're evaluating their sales hires against. But if I was to pick only six, it would, it would be those. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't argue any on that list and coachability. In fact, speeds to being coachable. So if you give someone advice on how to do something, but will they do it? on their next call, on their next email, or does it take three months? And these are the things, and let's not get into nuance of, of how we find that because we could just keep going here all day. <laughs> one thing that I, I know that you mentioned, I know a lot of founders just don't do this, and a lot of salespeople aren't really aware that they're in this sort of scenario, is six months after you know the new hire uh, is in situ, how, do you, how should you evaluate them? Uh, and, you know, you know, what, what should a rep know about that, that kind of probation thing that's in their contract that they normally just kind of pass anyway and, you know, it's mm. whatever. Mm. Um, how should that be done? So I liked what you said about that in the book. Okay. Um, so there's actually two components to this. One is, you know, my dead simple way for evaluating whether or not you made a good hire or not. That's, that's mm. one component to this. Um, and Again, I just want to be clear. <laughs> I've been at startups my entire life. Okay. What does that mean? We don't have a lot of resources. I haven't been blessed for the most part with a, a data, uh, a data team or an analyst set of analysts that like I could just ask a question and they come up with all the answers in a great PowerPoint. Like it's been me. <laughs> it's just been me and, and the CEOs and, you know, figuring stuff out. So I've had to come up with like these really simple things to to make this evaluation and here's here's the unbelievably overly complex way of evaluating whether or not you made a good hire or not you look 6 months in so you make a hire and you put it on your calendar and you you look 6 months in and you just simply ask yourself the question yes or no knowing what i know now about this salesperson would i hire them again knowing what I know now about this salesperson, would I hire them again? And it's not a maybe, and it's not a five point scale. It's a yes or no. And it forces you to go, you know what? Just okay. So no, I, I don't, I don't think I would. And then why? And this is of course, where I'm strongly recommending you're keeping diligent notes online of all the hires and you look back on the questions that you asked and you ask yourself, are those the right questions still to be asking? Am I looking at the right traits still? And how did this, how did this candidate answer those questions? I've made this mistake myself. They didn't answer the question that well and I hired them anyway. God, why? Ah, my mistake. I sort of fell in love with them a little bit. Maybe it was a referral or, or, you know, just, it was a really good conversation and there was just something in the air. And I was like, make the hire anyway. Um, look back on your notes and just go, okay, now do I need to evaluate my entire hiring process? Do I need, is it just a one-off, you know, is this just a one-off thing? Now let's look for additional patterns. Knowing what I know now, would I make that hire again? Um, and I think that's what you were, what you were hoping to extract out of that question, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the reason I think it's so valuable to mention is most people don't have anything in place. They they don't really have a way of measuring it. It's just a, uh, yeah, I'm not too sure. Yeah, we'll just keep going. And, you know, then uh, I guess problems arise after that. So 
I guess maybe going a little bit off piste, uh, a question that I'm intrigued to get your opinion on is um, what role do you see preparation playing in sales success for founders and then also for sales reps themselves? <laughs> okay. Boy, you, you, you're hitting all my hot buttons. So there's this phrase in the startup community, and it sounds like this. Run fast and break shit. Run fast and break shit. And unfortunately, in my experience, where what I see founders, they hear that. And that and that to them it just means run, 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 do stuff, do stuff, do stuff. Trust me, I bias towards action. That's like an Amazon principle, by the way, like bias towards action. Like I yeah, let's let's make a decision, let's go. Okay, let's go. However, are you going to run faster on a nice rubber track or are you going to run fast in quicksand? Obviously, you're going to run faster on a well-prepared track. Yeah. And when you're at a startup, when I've been at startups, I don't have the time to jerk around with two weeks of PowerPoint decks and Excel spreadsheets and all this kind of stuff. But a good 24 hours of like writing out your plan, putting some math behind it, cranking on a spreadsheet, asking yourself, what's the worst case scenario? A great lesson that I've learned, by the way, is um, one-way doors and two-way doors, which is a Jeff Bezos thing as, as well. Like we do this thing, we act on this thing. Can we unwind it? If it turns out to be a total disaster, can we unwind this thing, you know? But that's what I'm talking about. I can still act really, really fast, but we need to do some preparation. We need to think about assets that are available. And again, unfortunately, these are mistakes that I've made in the past. And oftentimes this happens when your product and engineering team are moving so fast and they launch a new product and then they go to the sales leader and go, ta-da, new thing, new feature, da-da-da. I didn't even know about that. <laughs> I didn't even, hey, great, y'all moved really fast and now you want me to sell that. Okay, great. Maybe we could have spent a day talking through who you felt the target audience was, what the major pain points this solves. Um, and, and it's that little bit of planning. But again, Paul, founders get caught up in this, especially the engineering and the product people. Those, those, you know, the PLG companies, I, I've been at almost nothing but PLG companies, by the way, before it was even called PLG. Yep. And it's like, Product engineering, product engineering, just crank, 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 crank stuff out. Just crank it out, crank it out, crank it out. Hello, <laughs> we're selling stuff over here. You know, may, maybe you want to get us involved if you, in, you know, intend for us to be a channel to sale. So that little, I'm not talking about belaboring this. I'm saying like, let's have a hypothesis. Let's, let's flesh out what it takes. 24 hours, 24, yep. 48 hours with a little bit of planning and then go. And just that little extra planning is like, you know, one of the seven habits of highly effective people. It's like sharpening the saw. It's sharpening yeah. the saw. It allows us to cut more wood when we do a little bit of planning like that. We run faster when, yeah. we, when, we, when we do a little bit of planning. And that's for both salespeople and sales leaders. And, you know, 
Anyway, yeah. I'm just going to stop for a sec. I'm, oh, I'm with you. Look, you, if you know what's coming, you can prepare for that. You know, whether you're yeah. going to go wider in an account because all of a sudden you can service more departments yeah. or it opens a new segment of the market. Maybe there's an SMB version of your, your product or service coming down the road. If you know what's coming, you can kind of start warming things up and, you know, start speaking to ideal personas and maybe find out what actually needs to happen before it comes along. So, yeah, totally yeah. with you on that. Yeah. Just going to ask you three more relatively quick questions, Kevin. So we'll what will uh, it can be? I suppose it'll be so, a little bit more jovial uh, in some respects. Uh, one is what is your favorite sales book? I know you've read many of them, and you're not allowed to say your own. <laughs> uh, uh, by the way, um, a great product person once told me that product people always hate their product because it always could be better. So my, <laughs> my book is definitely not on, um, on, on my favorites list there. Um, I, you're, this is not a sales book. And so I feel bad saying it, but um, Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. I wish that book existed 28 years ago. It didn't. Um, it was only written in probably like the last six or seven years or whatever. Annie Duke is a world famous poker player. Um, and, uh, and she wrote the book thinking in bets. And basically it helped me really understand that the decisions that we make, Paul should be geared towards improving our probabilities of improving success, our probabilities. Yeah. And by adopting the mentality, a, a probability mentality, it allows us to make quicker decisions because we're not trying to think of the perfect decision. And there is no such thing as a perfect decision because we don't have all the information. We don't, we don't know what's coming next. We can plan and we can hypothesize about what we think might ha happen next and, and you know, what has happened in the past and all that big thing, but we just don't know. So it's like playing poker. We don't know, like, unlike chess, where everything is right in front of you and the moves are defined, poker, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. And because yeah. of those, because of those uncertainties, we need to be making decisions that improve our probability of success, which is why thinking in bets is one of my favorite business books of, uh, of, of all, of all time. Now, if you're going to really put me under the grinder for my favorite sales book, The Real Secrets of the Top 20% by Mike Brooks. I listened to this book about seven times. And I'm just going to start by saying there's no school like the old school. Okay. If you, if you read the book, you're going to go, oh my God, this sounds like it was 1990 all over again. Yeah. But you know why? Because the fundamentals of what top producers do. And the discipline that they have in order to become the top 20% is the same then as it, as it was now. Um, and it's one of the best books I've, I've ever read. And by the way, it talks about that filthy, dirty word that no one likes to talk about, scripts. Mm. No one likes to talk about it. I love scripts. And anybody who's worth their salt loves scripts. Why? Because it helps our salespeople prepare for the call. Anyway, I, I'm going to yep. keep going, 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 but no, yes, I'm my favorite you. sales book of all time would be top 20, uh, Real Secrets of the Top 20% by Mike, by Mike Brooks, Mr. Inside Sales himself. Yeah, excellent. And look, some of those old books are amazing. I mean, like How I Raised Myself from Failure to Success by Frank Betcher. I mean, that's, 
maybe from the 60s and the stories are from the 30s, but still applicable today. So um, thank you so much for sharing those, Kevin. And um, quite another relatively uh, quick question. What is your favorite sales question to ask customers or prospects? Yeah, because it's not just one. <laughs> it's well, it's well, it's not it's just one. Quick In fire fact, I'm not going to I'm, I'm not going to answer that question as directly as you'd like. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Sandler selling system. Some people also think that that is that is old school. So his, those old recordings were amazing as well to go back. Pardon and me. His old recordings when he was doing those road shows were amazing to listen to. He's yeah. So oh, yeah. For an audience. Yeah. Yeah. Well. I love the Sandler selling system because it it's it's it was developed by a guy where sales scared the crap out of him and he had to figure out a way to sell and and make money in a way that made sense for him that was also relatively customer, you know, customer centric. So instead of answering your question what's my favorite question, my favorite series of questions is the is the Sandler pain funnel. The whole funnel in and of itself that starts with surface level pains goes down into the business level pains how is that affecting your business but then ends with personal pains and most salespeople, paul fail to get past just even the top tell me what yeah. keeps you up at night oh man you know our salespeople can't do da 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 da, da. Oh, okay great well let me show you my freaking demo <laughs> like, oh for god's sakes but when you can go through that series of Sandler pain funnel questions from the top level, dive deeper into the business. Well, how is that affecting your business? How long has that gone on? What do you think that's costing your business in profits or revenues? Like, what, what do you think that's costing you? And then, hey, forget about all of that, by the way. How is that affecting you personally? I walked out of a sales meeting in the freezing cold of Minnesota one time with a trucking company because I went through the Sandler pain funnel with them. And when I got down to the personal questions, these two dudes were like confused that I was even asking the questions. And there was like, there was no risk to them, no pain for them. They were just like, yeah, not doesn't bother me. I don't lose sleep at night. I, I don't lose a bonus. I get paid anyway. I'm not at risk of getting fired, all this kind of stuff. And I said to my salesperson, I said, okay, great. Time for us to go. And in that cold parking lot, I said, that's an example of somebody who has business pains and surface level pains, but there's no personal pain. There's no personal pain and they're not going to move. So take that out of your pipeline. You know, thanks for dragging me to the cold of Minnesota in February, dude. Yeah. Um, but that, so my favorite question to ask, to ask customers or potential clients um, is actually a series of questions related to the Sandler pain funnel. Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Kevin. And this is the final, final question. And it is... What advice would you give yourself if you were a young rep starting out today? Not in the 90s, but in the 20s. Yeah. Um, I'm an old dude, man. I'm 52, okay? And uh, and so some some of these things I say and I go, gosh, you know, do I really believe that? Here's the advice I would give. You need to work your ass off, but don't work that hard. And and there's there's a fine line there. And like I said, do I believe that now? And and I and I do 
the thing is I have this like sliding doors thing in my head, uh, Paul, cause like, would I be here today if I didn't work as hard as I did? Unfortunately, I felt like I made a lot of sacrifices in my personal life, my family life, um, in favor of work success. It was like, you know, my wife knew don't call me during the business hours. She's new. And, and it was like, what, why did I do that? You know, like, what, what was I doing at work that was more important than my girlfriend or my wife? You know, like that, that kind of stuff. And I just go, ah, I don't know. But at the same time, um, I'm concerned with, I'm concerned that, that people are being fed, you know, the 20, 20 year olds that are getting into sales now are being fed this sort of like, you know, don't, don't, you know, work to live, live to work, you know, whatever, whatever. And it's like, yeah, I, I want you to live. I, you know, please draw those lines. But when you're at work, your intensity should be like at 11. <laughs> like, like you need to put in like intensely hard work, but then like draw a line and say, and five o'clock, I'm shutting laptop off. I'm, I'm shutting off that God blessed Slack message, uh, you know, Slack notification on my phone. And I'm going to focus on a side gig or my family or my dog or go for a walk or health or whatever that might be. But I just, I need, I don't, I need to see more intensity, but I want to see the, 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 the line being drawn. You don't need to be working 12 hours a day, but in the hours that you work, the seven, eight hours that you work, put in a level of intensity that like that your head hits the pillow and there ain't nothing that keeps you up at night. You're going to sleep because you're so tired. Great. Well, Kevin, I think that is a fantastic place to end it. Thanks so much for sharing all that info. Where can people catch up with you if they want to reach out or find out more? Well, thanks for asking. I'm, as you know, Paul, I'm hyperactive on, uh, on LinkedIn. So you can find me uh, on LinkedIn, just Kevin Gaither. Um, or you can go to my website, insidesalesexpert.com. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've got a bunch of guides, sales and sales leadership guides there that are free to download. In addition, I have, um, you can get a free sample of my book 10, you know, there's a hundred learning lessons in the book and there's uh, a free sample of 10 learning lessons at insidesalesexpert.com. Thanks for having me on the show, Paul. It's been an absolute blast. Great. Thanks so much. So there you have it. People go to insidesalesexpert.com and get even more resources than we've spoken about today. Thanks and speak to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Work Before the Work podcast. For show notes and additional resources, go to paulcaffrey.com forward slash podcast. If you got value from the episode, then take out your phone, give a rating in your podcast app. It's only one click. And if you have 10 seconds to spare, then add the sales tip that resonated most and how you think it will help your sales performance. This really, really helps the show. Thanks again, and I'll catch you in the next episode.